0: We're going to be in a few minutes uh, in Mark chapter 6. So if you would like to open a Bible and you want to follow along, that's where we're going to be. Otherwise, um, as always, the Scripture will be on the screen um, in front of you. Before we get there, I want to take a, a moment of, of personal privilege uh, to, to recognize this morning that um, some of you know, some of you don't. Depends depends on, on how connected into social media. Uh, but on Thursday, our friend, Jimmy Rackey, uh, retired after almost 24 years on the force as a Bradenton police officer. And so, well, Lori, you're standing, but we're applauding as much for Lori as we are for Jimmy, because not only as his um, support staff, but also, I know this is a big day, has big, yeah, that's, what, that's her line, because he's moving over to work for the county now, so he'll be at the courthouse then? Well, you'll see Jimmy. Hopefully you won't see Jimmy at the courthouse. Um, but if you happen to be there, so yeah, you got to go through a, a metal detector. But many of you may have seen on social media uh, the clip of, of Jimmy's, um, is it called the, the final, last call and, uh, on Thursday. So it was, a, it was a privilege to be there. So I just wanted to recognize that and congratulate you and Lori. So, so when you see him, thank him. And so now... If you get pulled over, you don't have the prayer of him, please let it be Jimmy, maybe he'll let me off, so be good. Um, shifting gears, two, uh, two brothers growing up, grew up, adults now, living in Georgia in the 1950s. Uh, time of a lot of social turmoil, as many of you know the younger of the brothers decided he wanted to be part of a movement um, that he understood to be a, a social justice movement. He wanted to be part of a movement to end segregation and to create a, a community of people that were united as brothers and sisters. So he became part of a community that desegregated, that didn't recognize this, this break in this you know artificial divide between, between blacks and whites which was a pretty radical thing to do in the nineteen fifties in the south so he inevitably came up and the community he was a part of came up against a lot of opposition a lot of anger and inevitably some legal um, opposition that was thrown their way some 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 legal issues and and problems that they started to face so the younger brother turned to his older brother his older brother uh, was a very influential and prominent attorney in the community had a lot of uh, skill knowledge and connections and so he turned to his brother to ask for help to help this new desegregated community to face the challenges they were and um the brothers attended church together the the brothers were both christians and so he thought his brother would step in and help but his brother said no he said i can't he said i have too much to lose my connections, my influence, my position, my power, if you will. I, I have got too much at risk to step in and be involved in this. And so his younger brother reminded him, we, we are Christians, we, we follow Jesus. And his brother said, I will. I will follow Jesus to His cross, but it is His cross. I feel no need to be crucified. And his younger brother looked at him and said, then just acknowledge this you are a fan of Jesus. You are not a follower. You are a fan of Jesus. You are not a follower. And that is the the line that reverberates in my head as I certainly self-examine my own walk with Christ, but but as, as I frame the Scripture that we're going to turn to now, as I frame this story in, in the Gospel of Mark, it's also referenced in the Gospel of Luke, it's, it's in detail in the Gospel of Matthew, so it's, it's a story that, that has significant prominence in the Gospels. And it is the story of the death of John the Baptist and his encounter with Herod. And it is really a story that, that helps us to begin to frame that question what's the difference between a fan of jesus and a follower of jesus so let's turn to mark chapter 6 we begin at verse 14 in the aftermath of some of the things that jesus was starting to become known for this is what we read it says king herod heard about this again the things jesus had done for jesus name had become well known some were saying, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why miraculous powers are at work in him. Others said, he is Elijah. And so others claimed he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of long ago. But when Herod heard this, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised from the dead. Now, this is where the story kind of goes into a... Um, a it backtracks if you will we we see this kind of flashback scene yeah, similar to the way we might see in a, in a movie or a television show we get a, we get a flashback verse 17 for Herod himself had given orders to have John arrested and he had and he had him bound and put in prison he did this because of Herodias his brother Philip's wife who he had married For John had been saying to Herod, It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So Herodias nursed a grudge against John and wanted to kill him. But she was not able to, because Herod feared John and protected him, knowing him to be righteous and holy holy man. When Herod heard John, he was greatly puzzled, yet he liked to listen to him. Finally, the opportune time came. On his birthday, Herod gave a banquet for his high officials and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. When the daughter of Herodias came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. The king said to the girl, Ask me for anything you want, and I'll give it to you. And he promised her with an oath, Whatever you ask, I will give to you, up to half my kingdom. She went out and said to her mother, What shall I ask for? The head of John the Baptist, she answered. At once the girl hurried into the king with the request, I want you to give me right now the head of John the Baptist on a platter. The king was greatly distressed, but because of his oaths and his dinner guests, he did not want to refuse her. So he immediately sent an executioner with the orders to bring John's head. The man went, beheaded John in the prison, and brought back his head on a platter. He presented it to the girl, and she gave it to her mother. On hearing of this, John's disciples came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. We pray, friends, God's blessing here on the reading of his word. Let us pray. Lord, that we would uh, be challenged this morning. We would hear afresh your word and your Holy Spirit speak. And we would draw deeper in our faith and in our following of our Lord Christ. For it is in His name we pray. Amen. Are you a fan or are you a follower? How do we begin to even wrestle with that kind of a question? Well, John the Baptist gives us a good framework for what it sometimes means to follow Jesus. Now, We get introduced to John early in the Gospels. We know him as Jesus' cousin. We know him as the son of of Elizabeth in in the birth stories. His mother makes an appearance. And then before Jesus begins his ministry... We know he goes to be baptized by John the Baptist. John's call was to, to preach a message of repentance and forgiveness. And that is coupled by baptism, by the come to be baptized, which Jesus comes to be baptized. That begins his public ministry. And so we get introduced to John earlier in the Gospels. And John is that unique kind of nutty character. Of the gospel he he's described as a man who wore camel's skin that was his clothing he he ate locusts if you if you watch movies uh, gospel movies and about life of Jesus John's always um, pictured as kind of that that rough-looking character uh, the the long kind of unkept hair the 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 weird clothes he's kinda the wild child of, of the gospels and so that's that's how we kind of know John this authoritative loud aggressive voice of, of repentance and John's ministry had been out in the desert out in the Jordan, near the Jordan River kind of removed from a lot of the seats of power but at this point in the gospel as we come to Matthew or Mark 6 and other places, John's ministry has kind of taken him on a unique path to where he now finds himself in, in a figurative way, he finds himself at the doorstep of Herod, described here as King Herod uh, king is probably a little bit of a stretch he's more of a tetrarch he's a regional ruler over the galilee area now we'll we'll talk about herod in a little bit but this is not the same herod uh, that we're introduced to in the birth stories of jesus in fact um, you know because we talked about jimmy this morning every year at the at the uh if you come to the um live in nativity jimmy's our, our king herod the one who is responsible for the slaughter of the innocents Okay, that's not this Herod. This is the son. That Herod had a lot of sons, and the ones he didn't kill himself, because he was a bad dude, um, a few of them became put, were put in position of power by the Romans to kind of rule the regions of, of Israel. And so this is one of the sons, Herod um, Antipas, as we would know him, and Philip's one of his sons, and Herod II is another one of the sons. This is who... John the Baptist is speaking to. And he's coming because Herod Antipas has done something against the law of Moses, against the law of his people. Basically, he's married his brother's wife. The problem is his brother was still married to his wife. You know, this isn't a brother died and, and he, he married the, 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 the widow. He married his brother's wife. Essentially, she left one Herod to come and to be married to the other. This is a violation of the law. Leviticus 18, 16. It says, basically, don't have relationships with your brother's wife. It's amazing what things have to go in the law. Do we really need that law? Apparently we do. (laughs) Apparently we do. And so it's in there. Basically, don't do this. And that's exactly what Herod does. Now, Herod's, you know, certainly by no stretch is he a faithful Jewish person of the day, but he's of that lineage. And so, John is faced with this this fork in the road he's faced with this, this m- moment of, of rubber hit the road kind of thing and that is he can either play it safe and stay away from Herod and keep a distance and continue to, to be about his ministry or he can call Herod to accountability he can call Herod to the same accountability he called everybody else to see which Normally, wouldn't be a bad thing, except here's the problem. To call Herod to accountability comes at great risk. To call somebody who is on an equal level with you to to kind of point them in a new direction of of life um, may make them mad. But to make Herod mad could be deadly. And so here's the problem. He's in a position where, as this evangelist, this preacher, this prophet he's faced with, do I speak truth to power? Am I willing to speak truth to power? Because to speak truth to power always comes at a risk. Michael Foucault, the French philosopher, years ago spelled it out like this. He said, to speak truth to power comes with three significant risks. One is a loss of friendship. Two is a loss of liberty. And three is the risk of loss of life. Friendship, liberty, I called it loved ones, liberty of life. To speak truth to power comes at the risk of loss of loved ones, loss of liberty, and loss of life. And w- history is filled with the stories of men and women who w- refused to stay silent and were willing to risk any of these areas to speak truth to power. In the late um, 18th century, early 19th century, there was an English politician who'd been in Parliament for many years many years and he had a rebirth a reawakening of his faith in 1784 a a, a reigniting of his passion for following Jesus it was it was birthed by the influence of his mother and it was birthed by the influence or it was ignited by the influence of these oddball Christians this little group going around that called themselves Methodists and under the, a relationship with, with the Wesley brothers and with others who were part of this movement of Methodism, this politician had this birth of faith. And as a birth of faith and a reigniting of this desire to follow Jesus, he became passionate and, and committed to the abolition of slavery in England. And so he committed his life and his single, or I was to say a single, but his most significant pursuit was the abolition of slavery in England. His name was William Wilberforce. And he would dedicate his life to that. He died in 1833, one month after he died, England abolished slavery. But if you read his story, what you recognize is that his passion for following this call of Christ, his willingness to speak in the face of his government and say, this is wrong and this is sin, cost him Relationships cost him friendships. Cost him people that had liked him and wanted to be around him. When he was a politician before Jesus, he was great and he was the life of the party. But after Jesus, and after this commitment to the abolition of slavery, after this commitment to things that threatened their financial security, he wasn't near as popular as he had once been. So he had to be willing to to deal with the loss of love and the loss of friendships for his willingness to speak truth to power in our time today there is a lawyer in china by the name of Jin Zhejiang if I'm saying that right and if I'm not you don't know so um (laughs) but uh... in the early early Part of the 20, you know, 2003, 2004, somewhere in there, he was named one of the most ten influential lawyers, powerful, well-respected lawyers in China. And think about how big China is to be in the top ten list there. He too had a birth of, of faith and became a Christian. And as part of that, realized he had a decision to make. Would he speak truth to power? As he looked at a communist government that was persecuting religious minority groups, including Christians. As he looked at a communist government that was guilty of human rights violations everywhere he looked, he started to chronicle, he started to speak out, he started to be a voice. He was disbarred, and in 2009 he was put in prison, and he spent most of every day since 2009 in prison, often beaten by the Chinese secret police, because he refused to stay silent, because he was willing to speak truth to power. William Wilberforce lost friends. Zhang Zizhong lost liberty. And now we come to John the Baptist. And John is facing that same kind of a fork. Do I speak the truth? Do I stay committed to the message of which God has called me? A message of repentance and forgiveness. But a message of repentance means this. You have to name sin. You cannot repent of something you haven't named. You cannot repent of something you won't own. And so John wants Herod to own his sin, to repent of his sin, to change the trajectory of his life. It's not done in a spirit of condemnation. It's done in a spirit of, actually, of love. Change these ways. Do I speak that or do I play it safe? Which way do I go? Well, we know John never played it safe. And so he speaks truth to power and it lands him in jail. It lands him in jail. But the point is that when the pressure was on, he stayed true to who he was. He knew what his risk was. It wasn't like he was surprised. Herod, the son of the murderer, was not much better than his father. John knew this was not a guy that was going to likely show a lot of compassion. But he stayed true, even in the face of great personal risk, to who he was. He chose obedience over self-preservation. Now. He's the hero of the story. Let's talk about the villain. Because he's an interesting study too. Herod. Herod Antipas. Now it's easy to just immediately dismiss him as the villain. Say yep he's the one that had John imprisoned. He's the one that had John killed. And he did all of those things. He was ruthless he was self-centered it was all about him but there's an interesting verse in there that intrigues me two verses in the scripture we read and it's the verse 19 and verse 20 i want to read it again to you it says so herodias nursed a grudge against john again herodias is the wife of philip who then became the wife of herod antipas so she's kind of in this little love triangle so she's not happy at john's message either because it called her to accountability. It says, so she wanted to kill him, but she was not able to because Herod feared John and protected him, knowing him to be a righteous and holy man. Now, isn't that interesting? Knowing him to be a righteous and holy man, when Herod heard John, he was greatly puzzled, yet he liked to listen to him. When he heard John, He was greatly puzzled, yet he liked to listen to him. That, to me, fascinates me. Because John is the voice that is calling Herod to accountability. John is the voice that's not afraid to speak of Herod's sin. John's the voice that will speak truth into his life. Now, here's what we need to understand. We need those voices in our lives. You need people in your life. I need people in my life that will speak truth to you. That will call you out when you need to be called out. That will call me out when I need to be called out. But here's what I will tell you. I don't like them. <laughs> I need them. But if that's you, I don't like you at that moment. And I don't often want to listen to it. Because that's the self-preservation in us. I don't want to hear those voices. I might need to, but I don't want to. And I can tell stories about people in my life who have called me out. And I needed it, but I don't want to hear it. But yet here is Herod choosing to listen to John. He liked to listen to him, even though John wasn't telling him things he wanted to hear. Now, Scripture doesn't expound anymore on that. But there was something about John's message that was pulling at Herod. There was something that was interesting to him he recognized him as holy and righteous there was something that was starting to resonate i don't imagine very deeply but it was starting to connect he was starting to hear and then he makes the stupid promise in the scene you've probably seen in jesus movies before at the big party when herodias his daughter not named in the gospels but we know her as um, i would say salome or salome Uh, She comes out and dances. And Herod in his euphoria makes the promise, I'll give you whatever you want. What is it that you want? And she asks for the head of John the Baptist. And the scriptures tell us, Matthew says this in Mark, Herod didn't want to do it. He didn't want to do it. And he then finds himself at that same kind of a fork. Do I do what is right do I do what is self-serving? John was at the same place. Do I get safe self-serving? Or do I do what is faithful? Herod's at that place. Now Herod's nowhere near on par in a relation with God that John is. I don't even mean to imply that. But he's facing that same kind of a decision. Because he has the power here. Because if you know anything about the life of the first Herod or his sons, they had no problem breaking promises. They didn't. If it served them, they had no promise breaking promises. Or they had no problem breaking promises. But Herod chooses to do what is most beneficial for him. Herod chooses to serve the head up of John the Baptist because it looked good for him. To break a promise would have elicited complaints or criticism. So he does what is self-serving same fork different decision what becomes the barometer what what does serving and following jesus look like versus being a fan well it looks like this are we willing to do what's right are we willing to do what's easy are we willing to do what's faithful are we willing to do what's for us because that's what this comes down to. These two figures, the stories, the, 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 the hero and the villain, they both face that same fork in the road, and their choices revealed everything about who they were and the character and the quality of their lives. When the pressure's on, these are both pressure situations, what does pressure reveal about us? It's because pressure does two things. I was, I was thinking, and this a very simple, very, very simple, and... and um, basic illustration. But, but pressure does two things. One, pressure shapes us. The pressure situations of our life, the experiences of tension and difficulty and challenges, they shape who we are. We don't always like it, but it shapes us. And I started to think just the way kids play with Play-Doh. I went in Tony's kind of supply closet and I stole Play-Doh. I'm so I mean I took Play-Doh because stealing would be wrong. And I have a hardest time getting it out. But, but you know this, we learned this as kids. I mean, how do you shape Play-Doh? You squeeze it. You roll it. You put it in some, short, some sort of uh, instrument that kind of gives, gives it um, uh, kind of a shape and a, and, um, a, a character, if you will. But, but clay, potter and clay kind of illustration. Pressure shapes, it molds, it bends, it makes. God uses pressure. The lives, the situations and circumstances of our lives, God works through those to create and to shape us. And most of us can probably name times in our lives that we might not want to go through again, experiences we've had that have been pressure-packed but have been instrumental in shaping who we are. Uh, we could sit here all day and share those kind of stories. So pressure shapes. But here's the other thing that we know about pressure. Pressure shapes and pressure reveals and I've used this before some of you have seen it but pressure it reveals what's inside yes i'm not over anything electrical here <laughs> it reveals what's inside when when life squeezes us when the pressure's on we show who we are we very often it reveals character it doesn't always shape it sometimes it reveals it. And that's what this story is about. It's about a time when two people were squeezed. And what did it reveal about them? In one, it revealed a man of faith. In the other, it revealed revealed a man of self. What are the pressure situations of our lives reveal about us? And what are, what are the moments reveal about when, when you are somewhere and somebody you know, maybe a, a colleague or a neighbor or or even a friend when others are running them down, when others are criticizing them and and saying things that are awful or hurtful or spiteful about them, and you're in the situation to speak up, to say something, to take a stand, what does that moment reveal about us? When you're at a place when you are given credit and recognized and praised for something that you don't deserve, you're given credit for the work or the accomplishment of someone else, but yet you are lavished With the accolades, and you have an opportunity to stand up and to set the record straight, what does the moment of pressure reveal about you? When you have the opportunity to advance, to succeed, to climb, to promote, but to do so, you have to step on someone else, or you've got to step over someone else. In that moment of pressure, what does it reveal about you? When you and I are faced with the moments when we can do what's right or we can do what's profitable, we can do what's faithful or we can do what's safe, what does the moment reveal about you? Pressure reveals character. I love the scene. I'm a, I'm a fan, and, and uh, Ryan and I go to all the movies, and as a family, um, we go to a lot of them, but I love the, the Marvel comic movies. We, go to all, we just went and saw Ant-Man and Wasp on Friday. But one of, the, one of the early movies in the series was the origin story for Captain America, if you saw that. And and if, if you remember it, if you, if you saw it, and if you didn't, it's in the part of the movie where they're going to pick who's going to be the candidate for the super serum to become the super soldier that Captain America becomes. And so they've got their, their military. Man, it's set in World War One, actually. One or two. It was mean, World War Two, And um, they have... All these candidates, and Tommy Lee Jones plays Colonel Phillips, and and one of the candidates is Steve Rogers, who's a skinny runt of a guy. And he don't like him at all because he's got no strength. He's got no. He just all he's got is heart, and he really wants him out. And they're having this kind of argument of why he's even there. And he talks about the fact. He says something that wars are won by soldiers, and he pulls a grenade and he pulls the pin, and he throws it into the crowd of these eight or ten. Candidates, these soldiers. And in that moment, all of them run, except one. If you know the movie, Steve Rogers, the run of the group, dives on the grenade to cover it up, to protect others. And it's a moment in the movie that is meant to communicate exactly what you know, that, that what is significant is not the physical attributes, but his heart, his character, which is why he goes on to become you know, Captain America. But there are moments in our lives, proverbial moments when the pin gets thrown, the grenade's down, what do we do? How do we react? Do we respond in faithfulness or self-service? That, that's the question to ask us all, that for us all to, to wrestle with. Now, it's interesting that this story is a foreshadowing. It's, I, I wonder often how Jesus responded when he heard this story. Because he knows it's a foreshadow of where his life is going to go. In fact, Herod Antipas will be part of that narrative at the end of Jesus' life when he stands before Herod and then Pontius Pilate before he's crucified. He knows that the price that John paid would be the price that he will pay, the sacrifice that he will make if he chooses to stay faithful. And we know that Jesus always chose to stay faithful, no matter what people did to him. He never abandoned his call. And his call got lived out like this. He chose compassion. He chose compassion. When it, people wanted him to go and to have dinner with those in power and authority and religious influence, he rather chose to sit with sinners and outcasts. When others wanted him to go to the religious centers and the temples and the places of, of significance and importance, he chose rather to go to places where the broken and the hurting were where he could heal and restore. And when he was on the cross and he had an opportunity to speak words of condemnation and judgment, he spoke words of forgiveness and grace. Over and over, he chose compassion. That's what faithfulness looks like. Are we willing to choose the way of compassion? Because compassion is always about the other. Compassion is always about putting the needs of someone else over ourselves. That's what faithfulness looks like. Cultural anthropologist was asked years ago, by a student. What is the first sign of an advancing civilization? What is the first sign that a group of people are moving into what we would call being civilized? And the student expected the anthropologist to say something like um, pottery or some sort of a weapon or tool. But she looked at her student and she said this is the first sign of civilization when we find healed femurs. When we find the bones of those who've died who had broken and recovered from a, from a um, broken femur. And the student looked at her like she was crazy. Why would that mean anything? And she said, this is why that's important. Because natural instinct is survival of the fittest. You take care of you. But a healed femur means that somebody was injured in such a way that they could no longer hunt, gather, or take care of themselves. And when it is healed... When the bone has been healed, it means somebody chose to take care of that person in their time of need. Somebody chose compassion over self-advancement. That is the sign of civilization. Well, Jesus is the highest form of what we would call civilized. Because he always chose compassion. The needs of the other against the self. That's what gets revealed in his moments of pressure. What, when you are under pressure, comes out? What comes out when we are under pressure? We do sometimes fall short, but our relationship with Jesus, our ongoing walk of faith is meant to shape our character. So in those moments when you don't have time to process and you don't have time to think, our reaction is to do the things of Jesus. To lay down our wants and needs for another. That's what John does. He speaks truth to power. Herod couldn't do it. He couldn't do the right thing. The question is, can we When you are under pressure, brothers and sisters, what comes out? Let's pray. Lord, we we would ask that you would continue to shape our lives, to to work, to mold, to influence, to move us in ways that in those moments when we have a chance to speak truth, words that are truthful and sometimes confrontational, but always loving and obedient. When we have opportunities to put the needs of others above our own self-advancement and self-interests, When we have the opportunities to be like Jesus, we will be faithful to that. Lord, that we would not be fans, but we would be followers in the call and the way of Jesus Christ that leads to life. That leads to life now and forever. This is our prayer, and we ask it in the name of Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.